In the name of the Father, and the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. My Lord and my God, I firmly believe that you are here, that you see me, and that you hear me. I adore you with profound reverence. I ask your pardon for my sins, for the grace to make this time of prayer fruitful, my Immaculate Mother, Saint Joseph, my Father and Lord, my Guardian Angel, intercede for me. Today's readings, we have plenty to think about and contemplate in the presence of God, in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ. The first reading is from the book of Deuteronomy, and it has this beautiful entreaty of Moses to the holy people to follow the law of God, to be obedient to God's law. Moses said to the people, If only you would heed the voice of the Lord your God and keep his commandments and statutes that are written in this book of the law when you return to the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul. If only you would heed the voice of the Lord your God and keep his commandments and statutes. A kind of plaintive plea by Moses, if only you would heed the voice of the Lord, if only you knew what were good for you. It reminds me of Jesus saying to that Samaritan woman, if only you knew the gift of God, if only you knew how good God is, how good his plan is, you would easily, willingly give up this old way of life and take on this conversion, take on this new way of life. Our Lord himself, when he laments over Jerusalem, has a similar plaintive cry. If only. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often have I desired to gather your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings. And you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. A great expression of chagrin, regret on the part of our Lord for Jerusalem's obstinance, for its refusal to get on board with his presence and get on board with his offer of salvation. How often have I desired to gather your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. Another translation simply has it, but you would not, and you would not. And so in our prayer, we consider that God is always offering us this better path, this better way of his law, of his vocation for us, of his plan for us. And yet we have to trust him. We have to be willing to get on board. We have to say yes to it. Moses goes on to say that this law is not difficult to discover. It's not a hidden or esoteric law. It's something that is very close to the people and really near at hand for them to discover, for them to reflect on, to know, and to follow. For this command that I enjoin on you today, Moses goes on, for this command that I enjoin on you today is not too mysterious and remote for you. It is not up in the sky that you should say, 
who will go up in the sky to get it for us and tell us of it, that we may carry it out. Nor is it across the sea that you should say, who will cross the sea to get it for us and tell us of it, that we may carry it out. No, it is something very near to you, already in your mouths and in your hearts. You have only to carry it out. A beautiful description of our Lord's closeness to us in His Word. And the Word of God ultimately is Jesus Christ. The Word of God is a person. It's Jesus Christ. He is the new covenant. He is our reconciliation with God. He is, in a certain sense, the new law. And just as Moses is saying that the old law was very close to the Israelites because of God's revelation, because they heard it proclaimed and they could read it in the holy books. It was not something that they had to go up to heaven for, climb a mountain to get. It's not something that they had to cross the sea to get. Rather, it was already there in their minds and in their hearts because it was revealed to them and proclaimed to them. So too, you, Lord Jesus Christ, the Word of God, are very close to us. You're not far from us. Behold, I am with you always until the end of the age, Jesus says. Whoever loves me will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our dwelling with him. To keep the word of God, to be in the state of grace, is to be loved by the Father, and to be loved by the Father is to have the Father and the Son dwelling within us. And where the Father and the Son, the Holy Spirit, also is present. We have the Trinity, the Word of God, and the God the Father, God the Holy Spirit, dwelling right there within us as Christians. God's Word, His command, His presence is not far from us, not at all. St. Augustine even says that God is closer to us than we are to ourselves, that God is more intimate to us, closer to us, than we are to ourselves. No, Moses says, it is something very near to you, this word of God, the commandment of God, the path of God. It is something very near to you already in your mouths and in your hearts. You have only to carry it out. And in the gospel today, we see an example of this, an example of someone who knows the law, knows what God expects knows that commandment, that word of God. And yet he's hesitant to do it. There was a scholar of the law who stood up to test Jesus and said, Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? This is a question that comes up at different points in the gospel. The rich young man asked Jesus the same question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? And in a way, it's, a, it's the million-dollar question of the gospel. How do we end up with God in heaven? How do we end up with God in eternity? Which means, how do I live my life now so that it has really intrinsic and eternal value? It's not just a question of how to find the tickets that get me into heaven, but how do I live in such a way that naturally leads to heaven? How do I live in such a way that, in a certain sense, I'm with God already, I'm in heaven already, and when I die, I just go to where I naturally belong? How do I live the life that 
is worth living the life that God wants me to live. Jesus said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And so Jesus turns the question around on this man. Like Moses said, look, you already know, (laughs) you know the law, you know the answer. All you have to do is live it. So Jesus turns around the question and asks him, you tell me, what is written in the law? How do you read it? He said in reply, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your being and with all your strength, with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. He replied to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. Do this and you will live. You already know the answer. As Moses says, you have only to carry it out. Do this and you will live. Love God. Love God in your prayer. Love God in your adoration. Love God in others. And your neighbor as yourself. Expand your self-concern to include others. Or shrink your self-concern so that Others become just as important to you as you are to yourself. Do this and you will live. But the story doesn't end there. But because he wished to justify himself, he said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? So instead of taking Jesus's endorsement of the law, he comes to Jesus and he says, what do I have to do to have eternal life? What do I have to do to be good? What do I have to do to be close to God, to be pleasing to God, and end up in heaven with him forever? Great question. And Jesus says, look, you already know the answer. What does the law say? And the law says charity. Love God with everything you have and love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus comes to give us that same same command. Jesus also gives us the power, to, the power to live it, the grace to overcome our sinfulness and the charity, the grace to actually love God in that way and love others in that way. We can't do it without Jesus's grace. And so after, after Jesus lets this guy know that he already knows the answer, instead of saying, oh, thanks a lot. Uh, that's a great insight. I'm going to go do that. The Bible says, He wished to justify himself. And so he follows up with this question, and who is my neighbor? He wished to justify himself. It seems like that justification of himself means that, well, he he wants to seem learned. He wants to be vain. He wants to seem proud in front of Jesus. And so the simple answer is not enough for him. He's got to be scholarly and erudite and kind of bear down into the text a little bit more. Oh, but it doesn't say who my neighbor is. But also behind this wish to justify himself, we can kind of see that he wishes to excuse himself from the fact that he's not living this or or that he's not willing to live it. And so instead of changing and saying, oh yeah, that's a good reminder. I need to love God more and love others. He hides his own moral weakness. He hides his own selfishness in a kind of useless intellectual endeavor. 
he's not really looking for the truth. He's looking for arguments. He's looking for loopholes, as it were, using his using his intellectual abilities, intellectual agility to kind of cover up the fact that he's not living in the way that he should be living. That reminds me of um, the story about W.C. Fields. W.C. Fields, a famous comedian, was also uh, famously agnostic at best. Some would say some would say he was an atheist, but apparently on his deathbed, uh, his friends found him reading reading the Bible, and they said, "W.C., what are you doing reading the Bible? You you're an agnostic. You're you're an atheist." And he said with his characteristic voice, looking for loopholes, looking for loopholes, <laughs> trying to get it to heaven at the last minute. And so this is what we can do when we're not ready to really convert, to really be good. We let some intellectual problem or we let some intellectual objection to our faith or we let some other distraction, be an excuse, be a kind of smokescreen. And so like this man, we say, oh, and who is my neighbor? But deep down, it's it's really because he's not willing. As Jesus says, but you would not, right? I wanted to gather you to me. I wanted to give you this new life. I came with this truth, but you would not. And Moses says, you have only to carry it out. But many of them won't. And we too, many times, won't. We're just simply unwilling. And that's something, Lord, with your help, that I need to uncover. Where am I simply being obstinate? Where am I simply saying no to some change that you want me to make? to some greater trust that you want me to have, to a deeper intimacy with you in my prayer life, to some forgiveness that you want me to extend towards others, at least in my heart, to a new hope and a new optimism, trusting more in God's plan and less in my own assessment of things, which can lead me to a kind of doomsday mentality. Where, Lord, am I simply unwilling to get on board with your plan or what you want for me or the recognition of your presence in my life. Because because that unwillingness that you would not, that lament of our Lord, right? I was here, I was close to you, but you would not. You didn't want to get on board. I told you what to do, like I tell this scholar of the law. I reminded him what was already in his heart, what he already knew, to love God with everything he had and love his neighbor as, as himself. And instead of getting to work, he starts to quibble about the meaning of words. And who is my neighbor? That unwillingness can be very powerful. There's a story by Herman Melville, the famous author of Moby Dick. It's called Bartleby the Scrivener. And Bartleby is a clerk, is an assistant to a lawyer working there on Wall Street. And one day, his boss asks him to do some task. 
And instead of the usual compliance that this lawyer expects from all of his subordinates, Bartleby answers, I would prefer not to. And the lawyer is so shocked by this that he doesn't really do anything by it. And then the rest of the story, Bartleby just keeps repeating that phrase in different contexts. I would prefer not to. I would prefer not to. I would prefer not to. And he ends up not going to work anymore and just staring out the window and dying of starvation in the end. He prefers not even to eat. I would prefer not to. It's always in our power to exercise our freedom in this kind of negative, radical way. And it's always kind of tempting because it's, it's many times it's the easiest way to assert ourself or to assert some control over the situation. Just to deny assent, to deny that I'm on board with this or that. You can't force me to do this. I would prefer not to. And even though it's so negative, it's tempting because it gives us an illusion of some control. It gives us the experience of some control. It's kind of a powerful experience of our own freedom, of our own power of self-determination. Just to say no, right? I would prefer not to. I'm not going to do what you're telling me. Obviously, at times in life, we do have to say no. We have to say no to temptation. We have to say no to forms of control or manipulation that aren't good for us or or for others. But at the same time, our life as Christians has to be a constant, yes, I prefer God's will. Fiat mi secundum verbum tuum. Let it be done unto me according to your word, as Our Lady says. I have come to do your will, O Lord, as our Lord himself has described, as entering the world to do God's will. I only do what pleases him, as Jesus says, of his own motivation. And so we have to be careful that in subtle ways or in not so subtle ways, we can have this mantra of Bartleby at work in our soul, which will ruin us. It will ruin our relationship with God. It will ruin our life. Right? I don't want to. I prefer not to. Right? No to God's plan. You were not willing, as our Lord puts it. I think we've all seen this, uh, for example, in, in toddlers, that the discovery of the word no can be kind of intoxicating and maddening discovery for children. The fact that they can resist the will of their parents, the fact that they can kind of change the course of things by imposing or interjecting their own will into things, and that that can happen very easily by just refusing to go along, refusing to consent to the situation just by that simple short word no 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 i don't want to no and many times in the spiritual life we're kind of like that 
right? That it's not so much that we can't do it or it's not so much that we don't understand something. The word is written in our heart. We've been exposed to it many times. Kind of know what God wants. It's not so much that circumstances are too difficult to do something. It's simply that there's a deep part of us that's saying, no, I won't make that change. No, I won't accept this situation. No, I won't forgive that person. It's just bad will. It's just, it's just this deep negation of what God is asking of us. This deep unwillingness to go along with, with God's plan. And sometimes this is very deep. And so it's, it's, it's kind of a mystery that only we can move our will freely, but only God can move it without violating our freedom. Yes, it's true that God can't force our will because he made it free. And so only we can choose to choose anything freely or to change an attitude or to say yes when before we were saying no. But it's also true because God's help, God's grace, um, works with nature. It doesn't work against it. God is the author of nature. So it's also true that even though our will can't be moved without us, without our free choice, our free consent, it's also true that only God can move the will, can help the will move in that way without violating the freedom. He can push it without it being an act of violence against the freedom of the will. And so what do we do? Lord, when I find myself unwilling, when I find myself like Bartleby saying, I prefer not to, to something that you want me to do, or I find myself like that toddler having a tantrum, stamping my foot, no, no, no. What should I do? Well, we can start by asking our Lord, Lord, change my heart. As St. Josemaria would say, help me to want to want to. Lord, I don't want to, but you can help me to want to want to. And that's a start, right? To want to want to is, with the will at least, it's to want to. It's to, <laughs> to freely want to change our attitude, to want to change our will, to get on board with God's, with God's plan. But because he wished to justify himself, he said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Lord, keep me from sterile and idle speculation on the faith. Yes, help me to reflect on it. Help me to reflect on it profoundly so that I can know it well, so that I can love it and live it. But don't let theological reflection replace the simple wisdom of the heart of understanding what you want, understanding your presence, and responding to it fully. Jesus replied, a man fell victim to robbers. As he went down from Jerusalem to Jericho, they stripped and beat him and went off, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down that road, but when he saw him, he passed on the opposite side. Likewise, a Levite came to the place, and when he saw him, he passed by on the opposite side. But a Samaritan traveler who came upon him was moved with compassion at the sight. He approached the victim poured oil and wine over his wounds and bandaged them. Then he lifted him up on his own animal, took him to an inn, and cared for him. The next day he took out two silver coins and gave them to the innkeeper with the instruction, Take care of him. If you spend more than what I have given you, 
I shall repay you on my way back. Which of these three, in your opinion, was neighbor to the robber's victim? He answered, The one who treated him with mercy. Jesus said to him, Go and do likewise. So beautiful to see, Jesus, how you respond to this man's question, to this man's delaying (laughs) with this question, and who is my neighbor? It's kind of a semantic question, right? What does neighbor mean? How far does it extend? Who does it have reference to? And Jesus replies to this semantic question with a story. He doesn't reply with more speculation or with an analysis of words. He tells him a story of a guy who is beaten by robbers, stripped, and left for dead. And then three men encounter him, and yet only one, only the Samaritan traveler, and neither the priest nor the Levite helped him. And the one who treats him with mercy is the one who who is his neighbor. Which of these three, in your opinion, was neighbor to the robber's victim? He answered, the one who treated him with mercy. Jesus said to him, go and do likewise. And so Jesus brings it right back to action, right back to willingness to be good. He doesn't waste time in idle speculation. If you have mercy on others, you are their neighbor. If they're in need and you recognize that you can do something about it, they are your neighbor. You are their neighbor if you have mercy. They are your neighbor if they are in need. No matter what their ethnic group, no matter what their political affiliation, no matter what their race, no matter what condition they are, position they have in life. If you have mercy on them, you are their neighbor. If they need your mercy, they are your neighbor. The simplicity of charity, the simplicity of God's word. Love your neighbor as yourself. Any one of us in that situation would be so grateful for a man who stopped and helped us. A neighbor, a man or a woman who stopped and took mercy on us and used their resources as the Good Samaritan does to help us, to help us in our most immediate material need. Lord Jesus, thank you for the simplicity of your teaching. To love God with all of our heart, with all of our strength, with all of our being. To love our neighbor as ourselves. It's something that is easy for us to understand. It is something very near to you, already in your mouths and in your hearts. You have only to carry it out. Lord, thank you for making me capable of understanding it, for writing it in my heart. And then help me push my heart, push my will to carry it out. Because many times, Lord, I'm like Bartleby, who says, I prefer not to. Or I'm like this scholar of the law, who gets it intellectually, but doesn't want to live it, and so keeps playing intellectual games. Or I'm like Jerusalem, and you want to gather me under your wings like a hen gathers her chicks, and yet I'm unwilling. Lord, move my heart, move my will, to do your will and to have your heart. We go to Our Lady, Our Lady, model of correspondence to God, model of a yes instead of a no. Pray for us, help us like you to say yes, to say fiat 
be it done unto me according to your word. Whenever we recognize God's will, and whenever especially we recognize those little areas, those those points of resistance to God's will, help us there, Our Lady, Our Mother, to turn our no's into yeses, to turn our I prefer not to into yes, I will, I will do God's will. I thank you, my God, for the good resolutions, affections, and inspirations which you have communicated to me in this meditation. I ask your help to put them into effect, my Immaculate Mother, St. Joseph, my Father and Lord, my Guardian Angel, intercede for me.